Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys today. Glad we can be together today and worship the Lord. If you got your Bible with you, please open with me to John chapter 1. Chapter 1, don't worry, we're not starting all over again. This is where I want you to put your finger, though, in John chapter 1. Over the past two years now, we've uh, been looking closely at the life of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to read about how Jesus was arrested the night before he died. But before we do that, I want us to start by looking back uh, at everything that led up to this point. And so we're going to start by uh, looking at John chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 to 18, because it kind of summarizes everything that we've read so far, and it's good. We want to be reminded about Jesus' identity here. Uh, So I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. It's called the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So to summarize, there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And God has existed forever, from everlasting to everlasting. God is God. And we read here that everything that exists was made through Jesus. Every molecule in the universe, every grain of sand, every ant, every fish, every bird, Every mammal, every insect, every human being, every mountain, every lake, every ocean, every river, every asteroid, every planet, every galaxy, every angel, 
every created thing visible, which we can see, and invisible, which we cannot see, everything was created by God through Jesus Christ. Every type of life that we know of finds its origin in God. This includes what the Greeks called bios, where we get our word biology, which is the study of natural physical life. And it also includes uh, the word zoe, which in Greek refers to the fullness of life. It includes not just our physical lives as humans, but the, the spiritual life which we have, since we are spirits as well, embodied physically. And so every created thing in the entire universe, everything with breath and everything without breath was created by God, and also everything was created for God. Each and every created thing that was made was made to point to God. It was made to point to God in all of his awesomeness, in his holiness, in his totally uniqueness. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So all created things are from God since he made them. And all created things are through God since they were made through Jesus Christ. And all created things are to God because they exist to point to him in order to bring glory to him forever. And that includes you and me. This is why we're here. This is why we will exist for eternity. We're created by God to point ourselves and others to him and to bring him glory forever by enjoying him in his glory forever. And this was what was happening at the beginning of the world in the Garden of Eden. Eden, Adam and Eve, uh, man and wife, the representatives of all humanity, they were enjoying this. They were enjoying friendship with God. But eventually, instead of fulfilling their purpose of enjoying God and pointing to God in all of his awesomeness, they turned away from him. They, they rebelled against God. And Satan came to them and lied to them and told them that they could become just like God if they just did the opposite of what God told them to do. And apparently, the thought of being independent from God sounded good to them. So they believed Satan and did the opposite of what God had told them to do. And as a result, God rightly punished Satan and Adam and Eve and the entire human race for rebelling against him and for dishonoring his name. And God condemned humanity to spiritual darkness, to the kingdom of spiritual darkness uh, in which humanity would no longer naturally be friends with God. Our, our sin would hold us in bondage here on earth and in hell for eternity. But the gospel is that God who is rich in mercy, somehow still loved the world in all of its lostness and in all of its rebellion, and he sent his only son, Jesus, to rescue people out of the kingdom of darkness that he had cursed them to. Jesus left heaven and came to earth so that we would have the opportunity to come back into the kingdom of life through God, through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true light of the world. Jesus was the true light of the world. 
And even though the world was made through him, when he came, the world did not recognize him as its maker. The world did not submit to him as its God. And in fact, it hated him. But still, being full of mercy and grace, Jesus still laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice to suffer the wrath of God and to die in the place of sinners for the sin that they did, that he didn't do, but that they did. And to everybody who uh, uh, is born of God through faith in Christ, God gave them, we read, the right to become his children. Totally adopted out of the darkness into the kingdom of life, into the kingdom of light, and hit with him forever. And this message was at the core of Jesus' teaching during his public ministry. And and when Jesus preached and taught and performed uh, miracles, he did so with this divine authority that nobody had ever experienced before. I mean, nobody, they're like, this guy is different. There was something different about Jesus. And he boldly preached that he was the promised savior. He, he said, I am the Messiah sent from God the Father to save the world. And this infuriated people. It infuriated the Jewish leaders because Jesus didn't meet their criteria of the Messiah. And so that means he must have been blaspheming in, in their minds. So they accused him of blaspheming against God and They tried to trap him. They tried to kill him on several different occasions. But up till now, every time they tried to get their hands on him, Jesus supernaturally disappeared. And and the reason it says throughout John's gospel is because it was not yet his time. It was not yet his time to die. And since Jesus was well known, and he always had a lot of people around him, the Jewish leaders were looking for a chance to catch him when he was by himself so that they could avoid a possible riot. But in order to find Jesus alone and then to arrest him, the Jewish leaders would need inside information. And so at a time appointed by God, we read that Satan entered into one of Jesus' 12 disciples named Judas, and Judas went to the Jewish priests, and he made a deal with them. And Matthew 26, 14 to 16 says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So after Judas got paid, he kept tabs on Jesus' schedule. And he tried to identify a good time to trap him. So Jesus was eating with his disciples at the Last Supper. Judas put the pieces together, and he knew that they'd be going to the Garden of Gethsemane after dinner, and that would be the perfect place to arrest Jesus in private. It would be nighttime. Uh, There would be lots of trees around. The people would all be in their homes. So, you know, the possibility of a riot wouldn't, wouldn't even be there. And since Jesus is God, and he knew everything that Judas was thinking, and since Jesus was actually the one orchestrating this whole thing, he told Judas, he knows what Judas is thinking, he looks at him at the table and he says, go and do quickly what you're planning to do. And so Judas got up from dinner and he left quickly to gather a crowd to arrest Jesus. And 
Meanwhile, Jesus wrapped up his last supper with his disciples. He, he gave them some final instructions, and he prayed for them the prayer that we've been studying the past few months. And that brings us to today's passage. John 18, 1 to 12. So if you can turn to John 18, if you've got your Bible with you. Before we read this, let's ask God to keep working here. Dear Lord, we need your help now as we open your word. And we, we thank you, God, for coming to earth to rescue us from the darkness and to bring us into your kingdom of light. You are awesome and powerful and beautiful. You're totally deserving of our lives and of our worship. And because of the sin that we have engaged and brought upon ourselves, we cannot want you or seek you or worship you unless you help us. So we ask you, God, give us more grace today, please. Help us, God, to see your glory in your word. To, uh, to turn from our sin, we need your help, Lord. And we need your help to turn to you in faith today. We ask, God, that whether this is our first time in church in a long time or whether we've been here for a while, that you would use your word to bring our lives into conformity with your will for us. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to work in us and among us. We ask that you would use your word to show us your glory so that we can see you and celebrate you, so we can celebrate you for who you are and so that we can celebrate the hope and life and salvation that we have in you. Please, God, we pray for those we love and know who need this message. And if they're not here today, we pray that you would use us as your ambassadors to take it to them. Be with those who are sick today, please, and who cannot be here. Encourage them where they're at. Watch over our kids next door. Protect us all from the evil one. We pray this in the name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at John 8, 1 to 12, and because it's a narrative, because it's a story, we're going to look at a few verses at a time. We're going to go through it a few verses at a time. So let's first read uh, the first verses, 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now remember that uh, in addition to John's gospel, the Bible also includes the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each writer includes slightly different details about Jesus' life. So so as we look at today's passage, I'm going to kind of supplement it. I'm going to include other pieces of information from the other gospels. After supper, Jesus and 11 of the disciples left the upper room and walked to a garden, which we know from the other gospel accounts was called the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was on the Mount of Olives. So I want you to try to picture this. The walk from the upper room in Jerusalem eastward to the Garden of Gethsemane was really more of a hike. Okay? From the upper room, they would have hiked down 200 feet. 
okay, which is basically into this creek bed called Kidron. And it was kind of a seasonal creek. Depending on the time of year, it would have had water going through it or it would have just been a dry creek bed. And after going down 200 feet, they would have then gone up the other side on the Mount of Olives into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is very possible. It was a, a, a fenced-in garden, and Jesus and the disciples had permission to go there. Um, during Passover, uh, the Jews were supposed to stay in the city limits of Jerusalem. That was still considered part of the, the city. Um, I think we have a picture of the garden, actually. Um, in the Aramaic language, the the this is the, the garden today. In the Aramaic language, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And the garden of Gethsemane had lots of olive trees uh, whose olives were pressed to make olive oil. And to this day, you can go to the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives and see some of the oldest living olive trees in the world. Several of the trees there have been dated to over a thousand years old. And some people think that some of the trees might have been there when Jesus was there. John 18.2 here says that Jesus and the disciples often met together in this garden, probably to get away from the crowds and to rest a little bit and to pray together. This was a familiar place to them. And according to the other gospel accounts, Jesus entered the garden with his disciples that night and he told them to pray. And then he went off by himself about a stone's throw away, it says, to pray to God the Father. And as Jesus was praying, the disciples fell asleep, right? He tried getting them to stay awake with him several times, but they kept falling asleep. And so Jesus had nobody to support him. He was alone. And so we read in the other Gospels that God the Father sent an angel from heaven to be with Jesus, to remind him that the Father was with him, that the Spirit was with him, to encourage Jesus, to give him strength. Because at this point, Jesus was experiencing extreme anxiety and terror and physical symptoms um, that were horrific because of what was soon to happen to him. And he was in such agony that it says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So seeing that there was no other way to rescue us from sin than to suffer God's wrath for us, Jesus stood up from prayer, and he now resolved to offer his life up to the mob that he knew was coming to arrest him. And we read in verses 3 to 6, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So as Jesus finishes praying and wakes up the sleeping disciples, they see a bunch of lanterns and torches coming through the trees. And 
They could probably hear the sounds of metal armor and swords clashing together. Judas had gathered this large group of Roman soldiers and also Jewish temple officers to arrest Jesus. Now it's kind of ironic that even though the Romans and the Jews didn't get along very well, they had no problem working together to hunt down Jesus, who, by the way, was not hiding from them. Jesus actually went to the very place that he knew Judas would find him. And when Judas saw Jesus, he walked up to him. He gave him a kiss on the cheek to help the officers identify him. And all four gospel writers say that Jesus knew everything that would happen to him. And even though Jesus knew that he would soon experience the worst physical and mental and spiritual torment in the history of the universe, what does he do? not do. He does not retreat. Okay. Instead, it says this, he courageously came forward. He approaches the officers and he says to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus looked straight at them and he said, I am he. And when Jesus said, I am he, it says the officers drew back and fell to the ground. Now normally, If you've ever watched Cops, okay, you would expect the person being arrested by a huge mob of officers to be the one to retreat and fall to the ground and surrender. But here the opposite happens. Jesus, the one without any weapons, comes forward to the armed officers and tells them who he is, and then they retreat and they fall to the ground. Now that's power. That's real power. And this reminds us that during his public ministry, Jesus had asserted his authority and his divinity, that he was God, by making a number of statements that began with the phrase, I am. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And now, as he's surrounded by soldiers and policemen who want to arrest him, Jesus makes another I am statement. He says, I am he. I am Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now that's not an intimidating title. Okay? Jesus had already made plenty of claims to be God. But now with a shortened sentence, he claims to be a man. A man from that small, unimpressive town called Nazareth. So why didn't he just say, I am your God, so back off. Why is it significant that Jesus says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth? Well, it's significant because Jesus was God, but he was also a man. He became a man for us. He was supernaturally 100% God and 100% man. And as God, he was able to be our perfect sinless lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf and who rose with the power of God from the death, from death. And as a perfect man, Jesus was tempted in every way as we have been, yet he was without sin. And as a man, he truly became our substitute on the cross because he was a man just like you and me. And the Father looked at the perfect human life that Jesus lived on earth as a man, and he transferred all of his perfect works to the spiritual accounts of everyone who trusts in him so that they now have the righteousness of God that Jesus earned in his life. Jesus became a humble, unimpressive man for us, and he grew up in a humble, unimpressive village called Nazareth. Jesus became a slave to humanity and to death and to sin and to Satan so that you and I could be free from humanity and death and sin and Satan. Jesus was God. He was also Jesus of Nazareth, the man. And by uttering his most unimpressive I am statement, I am he, Jesus knocked down an entire mob of Roman soldiers and Jewish policemen. And they were shocked by his confession. He showed them his glory as the God-man, and they fell backward. And then we read in verses 7 to 9, So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So instead of running from them while he has a chance, Jesus probably gives these guys a second to get back up off the ground. And he asks them one more time, whom do you seek? And they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me... Let these men go. So Jesus told the officers to let the disciples go free, which, which means that the mob would have been happy to arrest the disciples along with Jesus. But this humble Jesus of Nazareth tells the mob to let the disciples go, and that's exactly what happens. Jesus protected his disciples in the garden, and it was a fulfillment of the words that he had just prayed to God the Father. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And this reminds us that one of Jesus' titles is the Good Shepherd. 
In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And imagine that for a minute. Imagine Jesus laying down his life for his sheep. Who would he be laying his life, who, who would be trying to get to the sheep? Predators, wolves, right? When we imagine Jesus laying down his life for his sheep, it's not like this. It's not like Jesus the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and then the wolves came in, they got to Jesus, they trampled over Jesus, and then they got to the sheep and killed the sheep. That's not what happens. Jesus lays down his life to protect his sheep, and not one of the sheep is lost. That's what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's what happens to everyone who trusts in Jesus for eternal life and salvation. Jesus rescues everybody who hides behind him, and not one of them is lost. He sheds his blood to save his sheep, and none of the sheep covered by his blood are lost. If you belong to Jesus, he will not lose you. Okay? That's good news. Jesus said in John 10, 27 to 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So how many of Jesus' sheep will Jesus lose? None. When will Jesus let his sheep perish? Never. Who will snatch Jesus' sheep out of his hand? No one. Trust Jesus. Turn to him. He will bring you into his flock. He will save you and protect you, your soul forever. No person, no spirit, no power can get to you in eternity if you are in Christ. Are you covered by the blood of the good shepherd? By the blood of the lamb? Have you received his offer to protect you? What's the other option? Have you rejected him because you think you can fight off all your demons on your own and you can fight off the wolves of hell by yourself? You're a sheep. Jesus is the shepherd and you need him because there are wolves out for him and out for you. You need the protection of Jesus. Turn to him. He promises he will never be lost. He will hide you in himself and your eternal safety and salvation is totally secure in him because he is God. He's the one with all authority. Wow, that's awesome. Now tell me this, think about this. Who has ever laid down his or her life to save your soul? Who else has ever done this? Who else could actually do that? You think about every ideology, every philosophy, every world religion the world has ever known. Name every founder of every religion in the world. You will find that only Jesus claimed to be God and laid down his life for his followers and then rose from the dead. Nobody else rose. 
And few, if any, laid down their life. And if they did, they did not save the souls of their followers. Only Jesus laid down his life to save you and me, because only he is God. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, the resurrection, and the life. And it is important for us to know that if you are not protected by him right now, you're in danger. So he says, come under my protection while you have a chance. I want you to turn away from everything else that you think will protect you, that you think will give you peace, that you think will fulfill you. Instead, turn to me. Like I originally gave you instructions in the Garden of Eden. Turn to me and enjoy me forever. And Jesus says he will save you right now. Eternal life starts now. He will lead you by the power of his Holy Spirit who enters you and he will share his glory with you forever in heaven after this life. Wow. After Jesus told the soldiers to let the disciples go, we read in verses 10 to 12, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So in this last-ditch effort to protect Jesus, Simon Peter drew out his sword. He struck one of the officers on the head who happened to be the high priest's servant. This guy's name was Malchus. And Peter's sword cut off Malchus's right ear. Two of the Gospels, at least two of the Gospels, verify that. It was his right ear. I love these little details that, that add to the historical reliability of the Bible. Two of the, two of the different writers say it was the right ear. And so Jesus told Peter, put your sword back into your sheath. And we know from Luke's account that Jesus then put his hand on Malchus's ear and healed it. And it was as good as new. He does that for his enemy. He does that for the guy who's trying to kill him. He heals him. And then Jesus tells Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so Jesus is definitely in a different frame of mind now than he was when he, he entered the garden. At that point, he was agonizing in prayer and asking the Father to take this cup away from him if there was any other way to save humanity. But the Father did not take the cup away because there was no other way for humanity to be saved. If we think there's any other way for us to be saved eternally in this world, this passage answers it alone. There's not. The cup is the only way. Someone has to drink the cup of God's wrath. Now, it's not like the universe would fall apart if Jesus didn't save humanity. We don't want to give that picture that God was nervous. Oh, there's no other way. I have to save humanity. God didn't have to save humanity. He'd be totally just not to. But he wanted to save humanity to show us the riches of his love for us and his grace forever. This is amazing. And so now Jesus says, don't you know, Peter, I must drink the cup the Father has given me. Now notice this. Where did the cup come from? God the Father not from Satan. 
Because Satan is not the one in charge. Satan is not the judge. The cup comes from the one in charge, the one who is the judge, God the Father. And what is this cup exactly? It is the cup of God's wrath towards sin. It's the cup of eternal destruction and torment, the just punishment for sin against the holy God of the universe. And we read about this cup all throughout scripture. For instance, Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So the cup of God's wrath must be drunk by everyone who has sinned against God, and all have sinned against God. And God does not enjoy pouring out the cup of his wrath. God does not even delight in the death of the wicked, he says. But God is just. He is honorable. He honors what is honorable, and he is the most honorable being in the universe. So he honors his own name. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath towards sin so that you won't have to. He did it for you and for me so that we won't have to. But somebody has to drink the cup. So if you don't put your faith in them, if you refuse to be saved from Jesus and to accept his drinking of the cup for you, then you must drink the cup of God's wrath in eternity. Don't reject Jesus and his drinking of the cup for you. And don't look away from his arrest and from his beating and from his trial and from his flogging and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. Instead, you need to look right at it. And you need to believe that Jesus did this for you to save you now and forever so that you can be friends with God and now live a life of holiness as you enjoy Jesus forever and rest in the gospel of grace. According to Matthew 26, 52 to 53, then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by a mob of Roman soldiers and temple officers, the unarmed Jesus is in complete control. That's what he's saying. And he told Peter, don't you know that all I have to do is say a word and I can have 72,000 angels right here, right now. But instead of defending himself, Jesus gives himself up to the mob. John 18, 12 says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Nobody took Jesus' life. He gave it away. He held Peter and the disciples back. He held the angels back. And he allowed the captain of the soldiers and the officers of the Jews to tie him up. And in that, Jesus was showing the glory of God. He was revealing to us what God is really like. He was showing how God uses his power in order to give grace to those who don't deserve it. 
He became a slave to his own wrath in order to set you free from it. Wow. How could we ever believe that God doesn't love us? That's what Satan wants us to believe, that God doesn't love a person like you or a person like me. And as hard as many of our lives have been and might be right now, we can be sure today that God loves us in Jesus Christ. This passage proves it. But so is the objects of his mercy and grace. I mean, we seek to honor him and obey him and worship this God who lays down his life for us. May we seek to be like the good shepherd who is a self-sacrificing shepherd. Can we be self-sacrificing people to lay down our lives for others? May we not merely be objects of this love, but givers of the love. And may we fix our eyes upon Jesus. This is our hope, you guys. This is it. This is all we have. This world is not going to do it. It is Jesus crucified and resurrected. He is our hope. We could never do that for ourselves, and nobody but Jesus could do it, and he did do it. So because of what our good shepherd has done for us, we are rescued now forever through faith in him, in him alone, because of God's grace alone. Let's thank him for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life for us, for telling us there's nothing we can do to add to what you've done. We can't save ourselves. We can only turn to you and look to you in faith and trust that you finished it for us. We thank you that you put yourself into bondage to free us from bondage. We thank you, God, that you voluntarily bled for us and covered us with your blood when we trusted in you. You drank the cup of the Father's wrath for us so that we might never have to drink it ourselves in eternity. God, this is the kind of God you are. You're a God of grace and love and mercy. And as we trust you and follow you, we realize there's nothing that we can do to add to the salvation that you give to us. There's nothing we can do to make the playing field level. And we thank you that the works that we do because you've changed our hearts don't even, uh, they don't add to anything, God. They're just, they're just works of worship because you've done everything for us. Thank you for being our good shepherd, our high priest, the resurrection and the life. We love you and we want to devote our lives to you and spread this gospel throughout the world so that all can know that there is life and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. In your name we pray, amen.